Good evening, everyone. Last week, we talked through some examples of how pain management had progressed in the medieval era. So now let's talk the Renaissance era, so around the 1500s to the 1700s or so. As per usual, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but I will focus on a few examples that I feel are illustrative and hopefully interesting. Let's start with the story of Willem ten Rijne, which I'm probably not pronouncing correctly. Ten Rijne in his youth became a doctor, and was also a botanist as a hobby. Starting in the year 1673, he was employed by the Dutch East India Company, and was stationed in modern-day Jakarta in Indonesia, just a little bit away from his home of the Netherlands. At the age of 26, which is coincidentally how old I am now, he moved approximately 14,000 kilometers, or about 9,000 miles away from home, to a completely new continent in a time before people had Google Translate. We've barely even started, but I think that already is pretty impressive. He lived there for a year, before the Japanese shogun, or the ruler, formally requested the Dutch bring a physician with botanical and chemical experience, and so Ten Rijna was assigned yet another 5,000 kilometers, or 3,000 miles, away to the Dutch port of Dejima in Japan. Already you can see one thing that has changed in this era. People have begun traveling for longer distances than was ever possible before. While before this, many different peoples across many different areas had many different treatments, new technology made it possible to bring those techniques and knowledge anywhere in the world. This is exactly what happened with Tenrijna, in this case picking up the knowledge of acupuncture and moxibustion from Japan. Simultaneously, he spread knowledge of Western medical practices in Japan, which I'm sure the local Japanese doctors found interesting as well, considering the shogun literally asked for it. You may recall from the earlier episodes that acupuncture is a pseudoscientific practice that uses small needles to treat pain and other problems. Moxibustion, though, is new as far as this show is concerned, and basically is burning mugwort leaves near the body and applying heat. Like acupuncture, it was used for pain and is part of traditional Chinese medicine, although it has not been found to be effective in modern empirical studies. The people of the time, though, did not know this, and with anecdotal evidence in hand, both acupuncture and moxibustion picked up some usage in the West. Tenrijna wrote a book on both subjects, which is remarkably accurate to information in Chinese texts, considering that the practice would have first been translated from Chinese to Japanese, and then to Dutch, and then finally from Dutch to Latin by Tenrijna himself. Although Tenrijna spent the rest of his life in Indonesia, he was the first European we know to publish a work detailing these pain treatments from the Far East. Such a feat would not have been possible without the new exploration technologies that only became available in this era. I'm sure this trading and spreading of knowledge also went both ways, as the shogun did request the Dutch bring them doctors, so there's probably some equivalent Japanese text about Western medical practices of the time too. But I personally cannot find it probably because I don't speak or read Japanese. But so that's one big change of the time period, and now let's talk about laudanum. For those of you who are unfamiliar, laudanum generally refers to a mixture of opium and alcohol. The name comes from a pill which the 16th century alchemist named Paracelsus invented, which he called laudanum and likely contained opium uh, along with pearls, musk, amber, mummies, yeah, mummies, uh, bones, and what he called unicorn horn, although it was probably actually rhino or narwhal. I would like to note that uh, nobody should be consuming any of that, really. 
Supposedly, these pills looked like mouse crap, and Paracelsus claimed they were superior to all other heroic remedies. Quote, Opium, as we know, had been in use to treat pain for thousands of years, and famous English doctor Thomas Sydenham had the utmost respect for it as a drug. It was discovered that opium dissolved particularly well in alcohol, and thus the two were mixed. In the 1660s, Sydenham decided he liked the name laudanum and used it for his own proprietary mixture of opium and wine, spiced with saffron, cloves, and cinnamon, which actually sounds quite tasty. Although I wouldn't recommend this stuff, given the risk for addiction. In 1676, Sydenham published a boringly named book titled Medical Observations Concerning the History and Cure of Acute Diseases, in which he basically advertised his special laudanum mixture. Despite the book's boring name, it seemed to have worked, probably due to a mixture of his credibility, the actual effectiveness of the mixture for many ailments, including pain, and the fact that both opium and alcohol can be addictive. For the next two centuries, this rust-colored liquid could be found around the world, often in a very similar mixture to Sydenham's original. It got to the point where laudanum eventually became a word used for any mixture of opium and alcohol, kind of like how we use certain brand names as a general term for that good. Think Kleenex or Google, or Escalators or Chapstick. All of those are actually brand names, but are commonly used as generic term for those things. And this is also what happened with laudanum. Again, the changing times made it possible for ideas to spread further than ever before, and while not all that much scientific progress was being made, it could now be spread around. In the modern era where I can send somebody something across the world in mere seconds, this may sound rather trivial, but keep in mind that prior to this time period in history, it wasn't really feasible at all to travel across many continents, even for well-resourced people. But this ability to travel will be important, because as big new scientific discoveries do start to happen, this lets them travel the world, too. And that's about it for this week. Thanks everybody for lending me your ear. If you enjoy what you're hearing, let me know with the links in the show notes. And if you don't, tell me why. Thanks also to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for this cover art, and Muse Open for this music. Music